I want to take you back to something that took place a long time ago in the birth of our nation. The day was April 18th. The year was 1775. The British had brought their troops into old Boston. The plan was, at nighttime, when everyone was asleep, to take some small boats and cross the Charles River, and they were going to attack Concord and Lexington. Everyone was asleep, and the British had their plans, but there was a man who was not asleep, and his name was Paul Revere. He was awake, and he knew what was happening. And Paul Revere, in his famous ride, we all remember the story, he jumped on his horse and he began to gallop from village to village and from house to house. And his cry was this, wake up! Wake up! The British are coming! The British are coming! And he sounded the alarm and he knocked on doors and he cried in the streets telling everyone to wake up. So as a result of that, candles were lit, windows were opened, curtains were drawn back, people began rubbing their eyes, men got up and put on their clothes and grabbed their muskets, as, uh, they called them minute men, they had to be ready in a minute, and they were, and they went out into the streets to defend their honor and to defend their country, to defend their children from the British who were coming in the night. Old Paul Revere sent out a call, and that call was this, wake up, the British are coming. Well, I'm going to tell you this morning, Bethesda, there is another war. It's a war that you and I are facing in 2021. It is an invisible war, and like never before, we need a modern Paul Revere to tell us to wake up. Is there an amen to that? The enemy is upon us. The enemy is coming, and someone needs to sound the alarm. Sadly, the church seems to be asleep, all snuggled up in her pews with covers pulled up over her head. The many sanctuaries are dark, and the church needs to wake up before it's too late. Who agrees with me today? Well, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Let me just show it to you quickly. This is all the more urgent for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and, and put on the shining armor of right living. I want you, as I read this, that verse and the next two, I want you to see what you are to get rid of and what you are to put on. It's very clear what Paul's telling us. Let me read verse 12 again. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds. Shed that. Get rid of. Put off your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of, and these are in couplets here, wild parties and drunkenness, or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living, or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself, put on, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Well, Paul gave us this wake-up call he gave this call to the saints in Rome so very, very long ago, and I think he wants us to have this same wake-up call today because the alarm 
has sounded. There's a great man who was highly respected as a pastor and an author. He died uh, in the 80s. His name was uh, the late great Vance Havner who said, in today's world, there is anarchy in the world, there's apostasy in the church, and there is apathy in the pew. Our good friend R.T. Kendall, who has spoken here many times, a, a precious gift of God to us, he has given comment um, in an article that he wrote on the sleeping church. My wife was reading it and brought it to me a few weeks ago, and R.T. says, the sleeping church looks like this. It's allowing things to enter our lives that we once vowed would never happen to us. But when you're asleep, you allow things to happen that we once said would never happen to us. Young people and uh, young college students and unmarried young and older people in the church sleeping together. That's what happens with a church that's sleeping. It's asleep. Same-sex marriage no longer worries us, R.T. says. That's, that's what's happening in the sleeping church. Abortion is generally taken for granted in the sleeping church. The sleeping church has lost its sense of outrage. The sleeping church, uh, the fear of God in the church disappeared long ago to the sleeping church. Nothing upsets us anymore because we're asleep. And we, to someone who's asleep, the one thing they really hate is they hate to hear the sound of an alarm when they're in a deep sleep. Uh, I agree with RT on all these points. Some of you might be surprised, if not astonished, to learn that I will probably be challenged on the, posi on the position I take to agree with him, which should be a clear indicator of just where we really are today. But I am therefore, on this January 3rd of 2021, I'm declaring to you this morning that the theme for Bethesda for the year 2021 is, are you ready? Are you ready? Wake us up. Wake us up. Say it with me. Wake us up. Say it again. So wake us up to what? Dr. Marty helped me put this acrostic together. Wake us up to worship. Where is it? It's coming up over there. Oh, I think we're on the wrong one. Wake us up to worship. Let our worship be awakened. Let us not become sleepy in our worship. Let it not become mundane. Let it not be, become boredom to us. There ought to be a joy as you come into the house of the Lord, as you drive down Beach Street or whatever way that you get here and you come up to this hill that is 4700 North Beach. Let us go into the house, into the house of the Lord because we're going to get the privilege of worshiping him together today. That ought to be our position as we come to the house of the Lord. Wake us up to worship. Wake us up to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's in charge. He's the boss. Wake us up to keep God's commandments. Wake us up to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus, which is what we have done today. Wake us up in unity with the Lord and his people. Wake us up in surrender to the government of God. And I have a little sub-statement to that is this. And when we talk about surrendering, that includes dealing with our unsurrendered desires. Let that sink in. Every one of us have desires within. We talk about Jesus being the Lord of our life. He's the Lord of all. We sing it. We say it. But every one of us have desires within that are not surrendered to the lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, would you wake us up to surrender to the government of God. Let the church say amen. Wake us up to uncompromised commitment to the church 
of the Lord Jesus and wake us up to proclaim the truth of the kingdom of God. Wake us up. Let the church say amen. People often talk about revival. I, I hear lots of talk about that. And it seems that each person has a way of defining it in their own way. Well-known author and pastor from New York, Tim Keller, has defined the components of true revival this way. He says three things. He says, you'll know that, that we are in revival when nominal church members are truly being converted. People who have just become part of church because it's their culture or their tradition. We often refer to them as cultural Christians when they have truly had a transformational born-again experience. That's when we know revival is coming. Number two, he says, uh, revival comes when people are being converted from out of the world and coming into the church. Number three, we know that we're in revival when sleeping Christians are being awakened. And I say all of that to let you know that I agree with the Apostle Paul and what we read from Romans a while ago. It is high time that we awaken from our sleep. My prayer for Bethesda for 2021 is that God will wake us up. Wake us up. Some have been lulled to sleep by the pandemic. Some have been lulled to sleep by life choices they have made. Some have gone to sleep by, out of sheer apathy to the things of God, just don't care anymore for whatever reason. And some are lulled to sleep by a lack of passion for the Word of God and for prayer, which is why we are constantly putting before this fellowship opportunities for prayer, why we are constantly putting before you opportunities to stay in the Word of God. It is so vital, so vital to your spiritual well-being. So may God stir us deep within and wake us up as we move into this year. And one more time, the church said. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, where I'm going to start at chapter 1, verse 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Ju Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and, and how things were going with them there in Jerusalem. And they said to me, not so good. Things aren't good at all, really. They said, things are not going well for those who have returned to the province of Judah. In fact, they're in great trouble and disgrace. Uh, the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by, by fire. And then Nehemiah says, you know what, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, it, it, for days I mourned and fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. Over the many years of my life in church, I have heard much talk about prayer movements. Maybe you have too. However, I often find an error in the way some people talk about a prayer movement. They would say, if you can get enough people in one place praying, then, then you have a prayer movement. And I would say, no, you have a prayer meeting when that happens. That's what, that's what that is. A prayer movement doesn't really happen until the people of God start moving with God as part of the answer for the things for which they're praying. That's a prayer movement. Did you hear me this morning? That's what a prayer movement is. When the people of God start moving with God, that's a movement. Moving with God to be part of the answer of the things they're praying for. Not just saying, God, we, we, ask, we see this as a problem, send someone to do this. 
but rather the prayer should be, Lord, if you have a part for me to play in this, then, then please show me what it is. I, I want to be a part of the answer, not part of the problem. And give me the courage to get up and begin to move in the direction of what you have for my life. Let me tell you a prayer that I pray very often, when I, when I, particularly when I know God has given me assignment. When I get up in the morning, Lord, just be sure that every decision I make is in line with that movement, that I'm headed in that direction. Don't let me make a decision that is contrary or counter to that movement that you are wanting in my life and what's taking place. That's what a prayer movement is. And the textbook case of this is what we just read about here and what we will continue to read of, of Nehemiah, who Nehemiah was raised in a place of, of captivity. He was living in this time and place of what had become a, a, a situation of dominance over the people of God. There's a lot more I could give you there, but I need to get through some material here. But even though he was in this position of captivity, as were the, 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 the people of God in this time, and, and, and he was there, and this, it was dominance he was living in, he still had carved out uh, a reasonably comfortable and secure spot for himself. He became a butler, or often uh, many versions of Scripture will refer to it as a cup bearer. He became a butler or a cupbearer to the king. He was the one responsible for bringing the tray with the king's food and with the king's wine. He, he, he had to bring that to him. And, and while it may have been a secure position, and he, he probably was compensated pretty well for doing that, and he, he found a place and a profession in which to work, it was still a high-risk position. Well, why was it high-risk? It's because in those days, people were obsessed with poisoning the king. They were obsessed with that, and so as the cupbearer, basically part of his security force, if you're the cupbearer or the butler, it's your job to take the first sip of every drink and the first bite of every sandwich or whatever it is. And everyone in the court is standing around watching while you take that first sip or you take that first bite, and if you don't keel over dead from the potential poison that could have been put in, then it's fit to serve the king. That's why it was a, it was a high-risk profession for Nehemiah though he probably enjoyed a nice living. Probably had nice quarters uh, to live in and could have been raising in a family. And it appears to me, and this is a bit of a, a side note, but it captured my attention this week in preparing for you. It appears that Nehemiah had made the best of a bad situation. That's what the people of God do. You make the best of a bad situation. We all have that. We all have circumstances that are challenging and, and difficult. And, and I'm sure if I ask for whom today in this room is life perfect, probably no one would raise your hand and say, well, life is, life is perfect for me. No, we all have circumstances that we're dealing with, that we're navigating through and, and trying to find our, our way through. But the child of God, the person who believes in the sovereign almighty God, learns how to navigate their way through and make the best of a bad situation. And so one day... He's visited, as we read, by his brother Hanani and some other men who had arrived from Judah. Nehemiah asked them, as we read, how's it going? Uh, how is it with my people? I need to know that my people are okay. And the, the people who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, and, and they said, it, not so good. It's not good. The people are so discouraged. The people are distressed, and, and, and they've lost heart. The opposition has been so great that, that they've, they've lost strength. They, they, you know, they, it's just become extremely difficult. They have no more plans, and they are in reproach with their enemies who are laughing at them all the time. It's, it's bad enough that you're discouraged and, and things aren't going well for you, but then having your enemies laughing at you, where is your God? 
Where is this former glory that you speak of? Where is this divine strength that God is supposed to give to those who belong to him? That's, that's what they're being confronted with by their enemies. So they've lost hope, and they've lost strength, and they're suffering reproach, and they're discouraged. And not only that, as if that's not bad enough, but the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates are destroyed by fire, and it's all in rubbles. Now, here's what you've got to remember about the importance of, uh, of the gates, particularly. The gates of the city were where the elders met. It's where a lot of stuff took place. That's where the elders met to, to plan their protection strategies. It's where they met to devise their, their battle plans. It's where they schemed and, 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 and conferred with each other and their strategies for commerce. That, that's what happened at the city gates. Everything happened at the gates of the city. So the fact that they are now destroyed and in rubbles is just another really, really kick in the gut, if I can say it that way, to life. Because that's what, it's what we do there. And Nehemiah hears this and he says, and when I heard it, you know what? I just sat down and I cried and I cried. In fact, for days and days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. Everything was really functioning up to that point pretty good for Nehemiah. He had a pretty good gig going on. And his life was okay and fairly well undisturbed until he got this report. And when this report came, the burden of the Lord came upon him. Now, who understands anything about the burden of the Lord? Some of you do. The burden of the Lord, that's a phrase we used when I was much younger. You don't hear it much today, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't still exist. The burden of the Lord. The burden of the Lord is not something that you and I, if we receive it, we're not to pray it away. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it can be disturbing, and, and, and there will be a natural tendency to want to get rid of it. But when God gives a burden, when God places something upon us, and it's the burden of the Lord, some of you know what I'm talking about. We are not to pray it away. If you're a true believer of God, if you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you, and you hear the report that now there's contemplation about deliberately murdering children outside the womb, that ought to put the burden of the Lord upon you. And, or, or you hear the report that we're delivering, deliberately allowing our children to become gender confused in grade schools um, or forbidden to pray in their high schools and radicalized by Marxists in our colleges against both God and country. And when you hear that, there should be the burden of the Lord that comes upon us as a church. When you hear this, the burden of the Lord comes into your heart. You can try to pray it away because it's uncomfortable, but you can't. You can try to pray it away asking God to have somebody needs to do something about this. But Nehemiah began to pray. The Word tells us that we read this morning, began to fast and mourn, basically saying this, and when I heard this, oh, I couldn't put it away. When I heard what's happened in my city and to my people, somehow this nice little apartment next to the king's throne and my job and my paycheck and everything I've worked to gain, the comforts and conveniences that I've been enjoying, none of it could satisfy any longer because the burden of God had been placed upon my heart. It isn't right 
The kingdom of God is in reproach. It's not right that the people of God are powerless. It's not right that the testimony of God is diminished in the nation. Another example we have of this is King David. When he came into the camp and big mouth Goliath is challenging the army of God to fight every morning. And David is stirred by the Spirit of God saying, is nobody going to fight this giant? Are you going to let this go on? What has happened to the armies of Israel? Do you not know your history? And they were offended at him, but that didn't stop him. He kept going through the camp saying, is there not a cause here? Is not the glory of God at stake? Bethesda, I want us all to be reminded this morning, it's not about us. It's not about you and me. It's about the glory of God and the reputation of God on the earth. That's what ought to concern us. And when Nehemiah began to pray, the very first thing he had to do was to move beyond his fear of the unfamiliar. You know what that is. The fear of the unfamiliar. Oh, I don't know what's going to be over there. I don't know what's going to happen. If I do this, what's going to happen? How? Anything. We've all dealt with the fear of the unfamiliar. But when Nehemiah began to pray, he had to move beyond that, which is a strong tendency within all of us. You know, we, we like the familiar. We like to park in the same spot. We like to eat at the same restaurant. If you're like me, whatever restaurant you go to, you get the same thing at that restaurant every time you go. We like to sit in the same seat when we come to church. Are we not, are we not creatures of habit? We are. We love the familiar. We like to do everything in order. But when Nehemiah prayed, the first thing he had to do was he was confronted with his fear of the unfamiliar. Let me take you to chapter 2 of Nehemiah, the first verse. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, it's not Nisan, folks. There'd be two S's if it was Nisan. It's Nisan, okay? During the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. This is Nehemiah talking here. He said, I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Hmm. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't, you don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. And so Nehemiah says his response was, oh, I, when he heard that from the king, the king saw that my heart was just sunk. So I was terrified. See, you were not allowed by law to be sorrowful in the presence of the king. You had to be happy, 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 happy all the time. You had to be happy when you were sick. You had to be happy when you were down and discouraged. You had in his presence happy, 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 happy when you had a fight with your wife before coming to work that morning. Happy, happy, happy all the time. You were never allowed to be sad. And sorrow of heart before the king had an entire list of penalties that could be uh, put upon it or associated with it. All of them not good. All of them greatly inconvenient, up to and including death. If the king woke up in a bad mood that morning and you appeared sorrowful before him, he could lop off your head and that was the end of your job and your life. And though Nehemiah fully understood his responsibility before the king, he, he got it. He could not shake the burden of the Lord that was on him. When God chooses, church, to reveal something of his heart to you, 
There's a reason why he has done it. Generally, it's because he's trying to lead you somewhere. And he has to get you to do something that he has assigned to you. What is your assignment? What is your assignment? Have you pondered that for 2021? What has the Lord said to you? What is he calling you to do? Which I could call everyone's name. What is your assignment from heaven? And it should not surprise you that when God gives an assignment, he's asking you to do something, it will probably be way out of the realm of your experience. It will probably be way out of the realm of your comfort zone. I have found, and many of you have heard this, I have found in my life that I'm never called where I'm qualified, but I'm qualified where I'm called because that's the way God works. God does the qualifying. He calls. He gives the burden. And you start to move into that calling, and suddenly the giftings to accomplish what He has called you to do will emerge. It happens. That's the way it works with God. And so when we start to pray, and then God starts to lead, and then we are immediately confronted by fear. Yes, that happens. Simply because of the, lead, the leading of God will take us out of the familiar it will take you away from what's natural for you. You won't come into church and just speak to the people you know. You will talk to people you don't know. You will, you will do something outside of the box. That's the way God leads us. He does not necessarily call you to do what you think you can do. In fact, he calls you to do something that you cannot do without him. He calls you to a place you never thought you would go. He calls you to do something you never thought you'd be called to do. And this moment arrives when Nehemiah stands before the king. The king looks at him and says, hmm, I perceive that you are deeply troubled. That's a no, 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 no in the king's presence. You're troubled. Now I want you to get right into up close with that moment with me. Get it in your mind. Nehemiah standing before the king, others in the court standing around, whatever their job's responsibilities are. Come into the scene with me. At that moment, Nehemiah had a choice. And it's a choice you and I have faced. He could have backed up. He could have said, oh, no, 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 your majesty. <laughs> I'm happy. See, see this? This is my happy face. I'm smiling. I'm happy. I, I, I wish you to see how happy I am. Happy, happy. It's what he could have done. And if he would have done that, that would have been the end of the story. And there would have been no book of Nehemiah in the Bible. God would have had to send someone else, and there would have been a book of, in the Old Testament with someone else's name on it. But there stands Nehemiah in the face of the king, making the choice to be honest about the sorrow and the burden of God that's in his heart. And yet, there's no lack of awareness of the tension that's being brought by the fear in his heart for the consequences that he could possibly and probably will face before the king for appearing this way. And when he chose to go forward, here's what happened. Because that's the decision he made before the king. A boldness came upon him. Now, verse 2 tells us, as we just read, that he admitted he was terrified. But I want you to come with me into verse 3. Because in verse 3, Nehemiah comes out like a lion when he made that choice to go forward with what he knew God was speaking to his heart. And here's what he says. I can almost see him squaring his shoulders back, taking a big breath. Long live the king! 
How can I not be sad? In other words, he's just admitting it. For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, what has he done? He's just put his head on the chopping block, and he knows it. And he's taking this extremely bold step. You do not talk to the king like that. It was not allowed. But at the same time, he can't deny the burden of the Lord that is just engulfing him. As he speaks, and he is acknowledging and being real about the burden of God upon his life, this boldness comes upon him. And obviously, the king saw it. He saw that this was just not someone being obstinate and being sad without purpose in his presence. And then as we move into verse 4 of chapter 2, this amazing thing happened. Are you still in the courtroom, uh, into the throne room with, uh, there with me, the people in the court? There's the king looking at Nehemiah, checking out what this attitude is that he's displaying. And the king said, well, how can I help? Can you imagine being one of the folks standing around saying to each other, did you just hear what I heard? Did you, did you just see what I saw? This is unbelievable. Have you ever seen this before? The king says, how can I help? And then we see the next sentence in the verse says, and with a prayer to the God of heaven, I want to say to Nehemiah, that's a great time to pray. It was a great time. Oh, God, what do I do now? I've now revealed what's going on in my heart. So he's with a prayer to the God of heaven. By the way, it's a reminder to all of us. There are times when all you've got time to do is to say, oh, God, help. My head is on the chopping block. God, help me. And he says, this is Nehemiah saying, I replied. He said, um, um, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, you're asking how you can help. Send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. There, I said it. Come on, he's not a builder. He's a butler. It's like asking me to build something. I'm not a builder, by the way. And yet he's asking the king to send him to rebuild his city. Now remember that these walls were high and they were thick. Someone who's going to rebuild them needs to know what he's doing. They were broken down to rubbles in the streets. And who was even going to listen to him, if he, even if the king did send him? Who's going to listen to him once he gets there? Because there have been many folks been trying to rebuild the city with no success, and suddenly the butler comes into town. Hey, everybody, I'm here. I'm here now. Don't be afraid. When we're going to rebuild this wall. And who are you? Oh, I, I, I'm the butler to the king of Medo-Persia. Uh-huh. And exactly what experience do you have at building a wall? Well, uh, um, not really any. But God has spoken to my heart, and God has put a burden on my heart. I hope somebody's relating to this today. Oh, he has, has he? Yes, he has, and we're going to get this thing done. Isn't it interesting the way God does things? Does it strike you as unusual? And then after Nehemiah boldly asked the king to send him to Judah to rebuild the city, 
he takes it to another level. His, his, his requests become a little more definitive when you go to verse 6 of chapter 2. The king with the queen sitting beside him asks, and so how long will you be gone and, and when, when are you going to come back? After I told him how long I would be gone, then here's what happened. The king agreed to my request. Again, I would love to have been a fly on the wall to see everybody's reaction to that. Verse 7, I also said to the king, if it please the king, um, can I have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River instructing them to, uh, I'd like to travel through safely there. That they're going to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to, to Judah. Look at this boldness that's come upon him. He shouldn't even be asking the king for anything. And now here come the requests and how brazen. Not only am I asking you to let me go, I'm asking you to take your time to write letters for me to pass through all the territories with, production, with, with protection. And so we've seen him ask for permission. We, we now see him asking for protection, and we're about to see him ask for provision. Watch this, verse 8. And uh, one more thing, King. Um, while I have your attention, while I have you here, uh, Please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, you know, the, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me some timber. Yeah, I'm going I'm to need timber. Um, I'm going to need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress. Uh, I'm going to need it also for the city walls. Uh, also, I need to build a house for myself. I'm going to need it for that too. And the Bible says, and the king granted these requests and Nehemiah tells us why. Because the gracious hand of God was upon me. Hmm. wonder how that relates to you. wonder how that relates to you. When the burden of God has come upon you, when you know the Lord has given you direction, when you know He has spoken to you, it gives you a boldness to step up and do what you could not do on your own, what you have no authority or ability to do on your own. And you begin to make the requests, and the king granted it because the gracious hand of God was on Nehemiah. Bethesda, when you set out to do what God has called you to do, guess what? No good thing will he withhold from you. Everything you need will be granted unto you. The courage, the wisdom, the permission, the protection, the provision. When you take that step of faith, everything will be granted unto you. Hallelujah. He will be God to you. He will be God through you. And even the heart of kings, God will show you, are in the hand of God. God will move heaven and earth to get you to where he needs you to be. And finally, in verse 18 of chapter 2, give me just a couple more minutes, please. Chapter, uh, verse 18 of chapter 2, Nehemiah arrives on the scene in Jerusalem, and he says to the Jewish leaders, then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king, and they replied at once, okay, great, let's build, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. And so here you and I stand at the dawning of the year 2021. Don't need to discuss 2020. You've got your own good picture of that. But I believe God wants you to know this morning that he has something very unique for your life. I also believe God has something very unique for Bethesda Church.
and it will be no less supernatural than it has been for every person all throughout biblical history. For when we begin to pray, oh God, give us a, a hunger and a thirst to come into your presence and to, and to seek you with all of our heart and pray together. When we begin to pray, there will be a movement that comes with that prayer. And your life will end up being something you never dreamed it was going to be. And, and you will end up in places you never thought you would go. And you will do things that you weren't capable of doing apart from God. And it will be all for the purpose that the testimony of God in Christ will be glorified through you for the name of Jesus. And I have a declaration to make today on this first Sunday of, 2000, of 2021. By the grace of Almighty God, church, we will live to see this generation free in Jesus' name. By the grace of Almighty God, we will fight for our sons and daughters. By the grace of God, we will fight for our homes and for our families. By the grace of Almighty God, we will rebuild that which has fallen down into ruins and rubbles in our nation. By God's grace, we will. By God's strength, we will. By God's calling, we will. We will live to see all of our children praising God again today. Again. We will live to see our nation turn back to righteousness in Jesus' name. We will not lay down and let this ruin be the testimony of God any longer in our society. We will stand in the strength of our God. Somebody say, bless the name of the Lord. Come on, stand with me. So many of us absolutely know what it is to have the hand of God upon our lives. You know what that is. I could look all around this room and I've heard your testimony. You've, you've lived with his presence in your life and, and you know what his power is and what he's able to do. And I know that in the Old Testament it may have been just a select few that, that, uh, that had that experience in the Old Testament. But you know what? In the New Testament God said this, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. By the grace of God, Bethesda, we will rise again. By the grace of God, we will wake up and be the church he has called us to be. By the grace of God, we will build again. By the grace of God, we will not allow our, the enemies of righteousness to overrun this nation any longer. Is there an amen in the house today? You and I are going to stand up, we're going to wake up, and we're going to move with God wherever he leads us into this new year. And I want you to know this, in 52 days, that wall was built, and even the enemies of God had to acknowledge it was a miracle, that the hand of God had come upon his people once again. So today, in this day, in this hour, let the hand of God be upon the church of the living Lord Jesus one more time. God, would you visit us one more time? Oh God, would you visit us one more time? We need you like never before. We are not called to be an argument about the reality of Christ. We are called to be a demonstration of who Jesus really is. So let the church wake up. Let Bethesda wake up. Let every one of us wake up and let God be God in our lives for the glory of the name of Jesus. We have no idea what God is able to do in our lives until we have come to that point of surrender that says, here am I. Send me. I feel the burden of God. Here am I. Send me. 
in me. And I want you to know, Bethesda, by faith today, I can already hear the prison doors opening. I can already hear the chains falling. And I thank God for his work in our lives. Would you just put your hands together and bless the Lord for his faithfulness.